You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Pleasant View Baptist Church in Carrollton, Georgia. While we're delighted you're listening, we'd much rather you worship Jesus with us in person Sundays at 10 a.m. You can find out more about our church and those services at mypvbc.org. It's the universal sign of disrespect. These are actions of men at their very worst. The strong coming in and picking off one victim, knowing that they're going to absolutely destroy this man. And before they do, right, like a cat with a mouse, or like, you know, dogs, street dogs in a third world country, or lions in the Serengeti, before they finish him, before they actually do what, what, what they want to do with him, they're just going to play with him just for the pure pleasure of it. It's horrendous. If you're in Psalm, and hopefully you're in Psalm 22, look at verse 12 and 13. This is how David describes, describes it, really. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Isn't that exactly the picture that Jesus has in this moment? Maybe most horrifying of all, though, is verse 20, where it says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloth and put his own clothes on him. When they had mocked him, there was no point to this, right? There was nothing, there was no orders. The whole plan that they had was just to make Jesus feel pain. And when they ran out of ways to mock him, when they were done, it was just beginning for Jesus. They led him out to crucify him. Leading him out to crucify him, they made him put or, or take his own uh, his own cross. Now, sometimes you'll see pictures of this or whatever, um, depictions of this, and it's the, the full thing with the long uh, top part, the vertical beam, and the cross beam. Scholars say that's probably not what was going on. Probably what they would only have to do is carry the cross beam to the cross, and there they would nail him to the vertical post. None of the gospel writers tell us, though, why uh, why Jesus does not carry his own cross, why they compel this passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who Mark actually tells us who his sons are, uh, why they compelled Simon to carry the cross. But I think it's pretty much implied that the point is, the reason is, because Jesus could not do it. That the punishment that he had gone through by the Roman guards the sleepless night he had with the councils had just stripped him of all the energy that he had. And he could not even carry a 30-pound piece of wood just some couple hundred yards. I don't know if there's a place where we could see the humanity of Jesus any more than in this one spot. The one who is eternal who Colossians says is currently holding all things together right now, wasn't even able to hold up 30 pounds. He relies on a stranger to do this. And what torture this is in and of itself. This is comparable to making someone knock their own noose that then you're going to hang them with. Or loading the guns that the firing squad will shoot you with. 
Go back to chapter uh, Psalm 22. Look at verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death, poured out like water. Everything that Jesus had was gone. Strength, power, energy, it's gone. It's, it's poured out like water is the way that David describes it. His heart is like wax. That backbone that David had that we read as he stands up to Goliath, it's gone. Anything that he had in his guts is gone. It's melted just like wax from a candle. My strength is dried up. You lay me in the dust of death. Verse 23 tells us that they offered him wine that was mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. These two ingredients, wine and myrrh, um, were there. It must have been given by someone who was compassionate to Jesus. Because what those two ingredients would do is they would have been a sedative. They wouldn't have completely allowed Jesus to not feel the pain that he was going through, but they would have dulled it at some point. Mark, I think it's just so encouraging to me in a way, because Mark records that Jesus did not take it. The plan all along was for him to feel the pain. He couldn't get by. He couldn't pass out of that now. At no point in this, none of what we read and none of the things that we didn't read, at no point does the Father look down and go, I never planned for them to take it that far. Jesus never thought to himself, I didn't agree to this. This was the plan from the very beginning. It says they divided his garments amongst them. They played games. They were their version of rolling dice to see who would get to keep Jesus' clothes. He didn't even get to keep his own clothes. He went to the tomb wrapped because he was naked. Look at uh, starting in verse 16 of, of, of the psalm again. For dogs encompassed me. A company of evildoers encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments amongst them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You know, I said this earlier. Mark is about as concise about the physical aspect of this as he could be. He doesn't describe the way that they hammered the nails in. He doesn't describe any of that. But we know from the other gospel writers and from historians that the way a crucifixion would work is that you would take nails and you would run them through the wrist and through the ankles and nail them into that cross. The psalm records, they have pierced my hands and feet. stare and gloat over him. Earlier we saw how the soldiers had mocked Jesus in such an inhumane fashion, but look now how those people who just happened to be passing by. Uh, I'm looking for the verse. And those who passed by, verse 29, those who passed by derided him. These were people who didn't come to see the crucifixion. They were going either to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem, probably to go to the market or somewhere else. They were just journeying by. They just happened to be there at the moment. But they knew something of what Jesus had said in his life because look at the way that they taught him so specifically. 
You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourselves. Come down from the cross. The chief priests and his scribes, they get in on it too. They say, listen, he can save others. Let him save himself. They go so far as to say this. If he would come down, we would see it and believe. Even those who were crucified next to him, people who were literally dying in the moment, mocked him. Again, Psalm 22, look at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouth at me. They wag their head. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Isn't that exactly what Mark is describing? Let me read the psalm, though, again. And this time I want you to think about, listen for the emotion that David writes with. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouth at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Jesus is not detached from these words. He's not just telling us, these things were said about me, and I didn't care. No, he's saying, I, I, I was hearing them. I was listening to them, and they hurt. Before we move on, notice how similar the wording is. Psalm says, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Mark says, save yourself, come down. From the cross. It says that three hours came uh, in verse 33. Three hours of darkness came over the whole land. Now, uh, Mark and John seem to disagree about the timing. It, it looks like John is using a Hebrew way to count time of, of the hours, and, and Mark is using a Roman way to do it. It's not super important. Just know that this is about lunchtime, right? Somewhere around lunchtime, it was dark for three hours. I was thinking about that this week. Uh, I was thinking to myself, how eerie it is when it's like really dark in the middle of the day. Like there are a few things, like weather-wise, that creep me out. Uh, I've been through a tornado. I've been through a lot of stuff. Uh, but there are a few things that are like, oh no, this is not good. When it's dark in the middle of the day, when it's really dark in the middle of the day, not just like it's raining, but like it's dark and it's not raining. Like there are a few things that seem apocalyptic in that. Mark also tells us that Jesus has not spoken. In fact, while other gospel writers say things that Jesus said, Mark doesn't tell us something that Jesus has said since the very beginning of the chapter of Mark 15, where Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you say so. And until now, Jesus has been completely silent. Mark records, there's four, maybe five times where Mark records Jesus speaking in Aramaic. That's what that language is, that Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It's the language of Aramaic. I was thinking this week about why would Mark do that sometimes, but usually not. Why would he normally translate it into Greek, but there's a few times where Mark cho chooses to give us the language in, in Aramaic. We said from the very beginning that Mark is probably writing from Peter's perspective. And the only thing I could come to was that when Peter 
thought back on the life of Jesus, there was a few phrases that he heard in his head in that original language. He remembers the way that Jesus said them. Now, Peter wasn't there at this point, so someone must have come back and said, Peter, it got dark. And we haven't heard Jesus speak in a long time. We weren't sure what was really going on. And then all of a sudden, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. I can imagine as Mark is telling this, or sorry, Peter is telling this back to Mark. Peter is hearing those words over and over in his head. Those words that mean, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, his whole life, his whole life, you look at, at the, the gospel writers, Jesus is rejected in his hometown. So much so that Jesus has not even able to do uh, miracles in his hometown very much. He just teaches a few things and then leaves. His family at one point comes to him and is like, Jesus, why are you acting crazy? Acting like you're the son of God. We, we know who you are. We grew up with you. Judas, this week, in the story has betrayed him. His disciples, including Peter, who said, I would be willing to die tonight have left him. And the only thing that he had was the Father. And now, on the cross, the Father turns his back to him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 begins with these words. In fact, Jesus is directly quoting, word for word, quoting the first two, or the very first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I do not find rest. And with that, Jesus breathes his last. Jesus uttered a loud cry and died. Mark tells us that two things happened. It's important that we remember that two things happened, and, and Mark wants us to know about both of them. When Jesus breathed his last, the first is that the temple of the curtain and the, the temple and the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. That temple divided the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. The holy of holies was this place in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, where, uh, where on one day, just on one day a year, one person, the chief high priest, could enter into the holy of holies and he would make sacrifices for all the people of Israel. He would go into that one place because that one place had the unique presence of God. Now, we as, as Christians and Jews believe this too, that get, we believe that God is everywhere, that there is no place where God is not there, but the Holy of Holies had this unique presence of God. If you were here last week, uh, there were some things in that sermon that I couldn't fully explain. This too, I can't fully explain how God is everywhere, and yet his presence is somehow uniquely in the Holy of Holies. But there was some way in which it was. God was uniquely there. So when that temple uh, curtain is torn, it symbolizes that Jesus has done two things. Number one, he has ended this idea. He has fulfilled this idea that God's unique presence is now in one geographic place. It's why you don't have to go to some one particular place. You don't even have to come to this building for us to find Jesus, to hear from God, to meet with him. But it also was the end of the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system, uh, you know, maybe the easiest way to think of it was like a countdown looking forward to Jesus. It was this thing that looked ahead. 
if you've done those little, you know, uh, paper chain things leading up to Christmas, and you know, there'll be like 25 of them, and then every day you'll, you'll take one and you'll rip it apart, and that chain gets lower, shorter and shorter. It would be silly to still have that out on Christmas. Because the whole point is that you're looking forward to Christmas Day. In the same way, the sacrificial system, the killing of bulls and goats over and over and over and over, was always pointing us forward to the death of Jesus Christ. And now that he has died, that system is over. But Mark tells us that something else happened when Jesus died. Verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man is the Son of God. Now, do you remember the beginning of Mark? I mean the very beginning, like the very first sentence of Mark. Mark said this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's really interesting that Mark does that, and that's how he starts this. Uh, and I kind of made a big deal about it, and it was kind of confusing why I did, but it was because of this verse and one other. Mark starts his gospel by saying that that's who Jesus is. In chapter 8 of Mark, I think it's chapter 8, uh, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives his answer, right? You are the Christ. It's odd that that's what Mark says in his gospel. Because the other gospel writers tell us that that's not all that Peter said. Peter actually said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Why would Mark, who believes that Jesus is truly the Christ, the Son of God, only record Peter saying half of that? I think it was because the second half of that is answered by this man standing here at the cross. That Mark begins by saying, this is who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of God. Peter, the, the Jew, tells us, Jesus is the Christ. And now we get this man at the foot of the cross saying, he is the Son of God. Why does all this matter? Go back to Psalm 23. Verses 3 through 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And our fathers, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were put to shame. So now, again, the parallel continues. Men are trusting in the God of Israel. They are praising the God of heaven. But this time the parallel is not perfect. Because Psalm 22 says, You were enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers, David is writing this, in you the Jewish fathers trusted. You see, what's happening here is that Mark is kind of pointing us to this opening, this change of things, that because Jesus has died, he has not died for the Jew only. And for everybody that I see here today, that's really good news, because we're Gentiles. And before this happened, we were on the outside looking in, hoping that one day the promises that God made to Abraham, that through you and through your family, Abraham, all the families would be blessed. We have been longing and waiting for the day that we would be as Paul tells us, grafted in like a limb from another tree that gets added to the tree of Israel. And in this moment, we get Mark is telling us, don't forget, it was a centurion who saw who Jesus was, a Roman, a Gentile. You know, as I thought about this, if, if we'd have been there, if you'd have been there at the cross that day, seeing how Jesus died, the obvious assumption that there is no way that man's who he said he was. 
Look at him dying like that. So weak. Such a victim. He's not in control of anything. Unless you know Psalm 22 by heart. Unless you're looking at him and going, that man is exactly who he said he was. And not is he exactly who he said he was. He's exactly who King David said he would be. 1,500 years ago. Sometimes I'll do this thing when I teach younger kids, especially children. I'll, I'll always say this. If you ever teach kids, you can steal this if you want. I'll always say, when you go home today, or on your way home, your parents are going to ask you, what did you learn today? And you better have a good answer, because if not, that's going to make me look bad. That's what I've always, always thought. And so we get home over and over again. This is what you're going to say when they say, what did, what, did, what did Micah teach you? You know, whether it's children's church or Sunday school or whatever. And you hit that over and over and over, so they get the main idea. Well, if you're on the way home today, and your kid who's in children's church asks you, Mom, what was the sermon about today? First of all, you've got a very mature child, and I really appreciate that. But second of all, second of all, if your answer is, well, Jesus was who Psalm 22 said he would be, that's right, but it's not enough. You may have noticed that Psalm 22, I'm, I'm going to flip there now, Psalm 22, we read almost every verse of the first half. But there's a second half to the psalm that, that if we were here, let's say hypothetically, this was not Pleasant View Baptist Church. This was, it was like 300 B.C., and this was Pleasant View Jewish Synagogue, and I was your rabbi and not your pastor. And we came to this psalm in my teaching series. I would have no idea how to teach this as a Jewish person. No clue how to teach this. Because we, you've seen all that David has written the first 18 verses of Psalm 22, but, but listen, or yeah, uh, Psalm 22, but listen to how the second half reads. It has verses like this. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. If you're reading this chapter, you're thinking, how does the same guy who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, 22 verses later say, everybody better be praising Yahweh because he is a great God. That makes no sense. Because although Mark 15 records Jesus' experience through these first 18 verses, Mark 15 records them, but Mark has 16 chapters. And there, as the women who loved Jesus went to anoint his dead body with spices, verse 6 of chapter 16 says this, They were met by an angel who said, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. He paid the penalty of sin. He died the death that we deserve, but he is alive. That's the only way I can understand Psalm 22 is that the story isn't over. I don't know how David wrote this originally. I don't know how he even understood the, the very psalm that he wrote. It makes no sense. Because the story sure seems to be over for David through 21 verses. But for Jesus, it is not. And for the believer, it is not. So let me, let me read to you verses. You who fear the Lord... Praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised or abhorred the afflicted, the affliction.
his face from him, but he has heard him when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of Yahweh to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done. Here's the thing. Mark ends in a really weird way. A really, really weird way. In fact, maybe you've already seen this, and maybe you're going to ask me about this. Mark ends, uh, I'll just be honest with you, we don't have time to get into this this morning. If, if you'd like to know more about this, I'd, I'd love to pay after the service. But uh, I don't think the verses 9 through the end of Mark are original. I don't think uh, we should study them necessarily. I don't think it's a problem if they're in there. But uh, I don't think Mark actually wrote those words. I think someone later came and added to them. And I think it makes perfect sense why someone would. Because this is how the gospel of Mark ends. This is the very last words of the gospel of Mark. And the women went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And the gospel ends. It is over. You think that's the end? But I think Mark did that completely on purpose. Because he wanted the church, if you remember, we said this. Uh, Several weeks back, uh, we said that Mark was probably writing to the church at Rome right after Peter, who was their pastor, had died by persecution. And Mark writes this gospel to them to encourage the church at Rome. And I think what Mark is doing in this letter, this gospel, he's saying, listen, church, if you've got Psalm 22 in this hand and you've got Mark 16 in, in this hand, you read how the disciples were cowering in fear and the women went and said nothing to anyone. And then you read how Psalm 22 ends, and you see, wait a second, this psalm ends over here with people praising Yahweh and telling the coming generation. And over here, people are scared. And that's the two options that Mark gives his people. That's the two options that I'm giving you this morning, because that's the truth. We can either be afraid, knowing that Jesus is dead and alive, and knowing all the other things that comes with it. Or we can praise him, and we can tell about the coming generation. To tell of his righteousness to a generation that's not even born yet. That's our two options here this morning. And in light of our current climate, that really is our two options here this morning. Is that we can be afraid, or we can praise Yahweh, because he is a good God who does not forget the affliction of the afflicted. Let's pray in a minute. Father, that's the choice that we have before us. To paraphrase the words of, of Joshua, choose you this day. That is what we have before us. In fact, that's the choice that we have every single hour of our lives. I know that Jesus is, has died for my sins, that he paid the punishment of my sins, and I know that he is alive right now at the right hand of the Father. And will I be afraid, or will I praise him? Father, we pray that not just these, the words of this psalm that we're going to sing, but we pray through the lives that we will live this week that we would do that, that we would praise you, and that we would tell a coming generation of your greatness.
Father, we can't do that on our own. The flesh is willing. And the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So help us. Give us the strength that we need.